from across time and space, GameCritics.com presents The Doctor Who Show. My name is Tim Spath. I am normally the host of the GameCritics.com podcast, but tonight it's all about Time Lords and TARDISes. And joining me, an international assembly of Doctor Who enthusiasts. Let's introduce them now. First up, a familiar voice if you listen to the GameCritics.com podcast, my colleague, my co-host, my friend, Brad Galloway. Hello, Brad. Hey, Tim. Really excited to be here. Really uh, glad to be with our special guests. Uh, and before we uh, move ahead, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to my good friend Strident from Twitter, who I really wish could have been with us tonight. Unfortunately, couldn't make it, but he would have been a fine addition. However, tonight's show is going to rock. It absolutely is. And Brad, if I may say, because I've been holding on to this joke for about a month, uh, tonight, may I call you Brad Gallifrey? I've been waiting for that. I was wondering. And so in honor of that, yes, yes, you may. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Quite welcome, sir. Um, also tonight on our panel, a very special guest. We're so thrilled to welcome Kimberly Unger. She is the CEO of Bushigo and a futurist in training. Kim, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Tell us about being a futurist in training. Well, not to one put you of the on things- the spot. Not to put me on the spot, but the thing that always gets me about, I I think about this question, actually. The thing that always, you know, there's the great question, where are the flying cars? You know, most people at some point in the past who have been described as futurists almost inevitably have the coolest visions of the future, (laughs) and they just never pan out. So that's, that's what I hope to be someday is to have a cool enough vision of the future that everybody will be looking for their flying cars. It's the Back to the Future Part 2 syndrome, really. <laughs> exactly. We're not, we're not going to make it to Back to the Future 2, and I personally blame all the futurists, but if you can change, if you can change that, that perception, I, uh, I fully support it. <laughs> so, Kimberly, thank you so much for being here. Uh, finally... The man who is putting the international in our international assembly, uh, our old friend Sanan Kuba, uh, the host of the Big Red Potion podcast, also a man about town. Sanan, you're, you're up late tonight, aren't you? Yes, but I'm here on time, which is makes me personally very, very happy. And I'm sober, which is an, an immense improvement on last time as well. Um, Are you up but- very late or very early? Uh, I'm up very early, actually. Uh, I I just got up an hour ago, um, which probably explains why I'm going to find the Brad Gallifrey joke really funny for the next hour. <laughs> uh, well, 
Well, Sanan, last time you were on uh, the Game Critics show, you were, I don't remember the exact story, it was something about a, a bus and a, 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 the police, and, and I think you went to prison for a brief period. <laughs> what? Yeah, so, it, was, it was messy. So, I'm glad that you're, it's much less stress-free for you tonight. Thank you. <laughs> or, no, it would be much more stress-free for you tonight. Anyway, <laughs> let me move on. Uh, thank you all for being here. The, the idea for this podcast was born on Twitter, which of course is not an ideal venue for a lengthy discussion of any depth. So Brad proposed a podcast and, and Kimberly and Sinan, you were kind enough to sign on. So, so here we are. Uh, what I think we should do before we run down the topics is just share with, with everyone our personal experiences with Doctor Who, just to kind of set the expectations as to what the scope of the conversation will be. So, uh, Kimberly, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll start with you. And, and tell us, uh, how did you get into Doctor Who? How, how far back do you go? Uh, you know, what seasons have you watched? Are you reading the novels? Are you writing fan fiction? Uh, how deep does your fandom go? Well, first of all, I will, I will confess there was a point in time where I was writing fan fiction, but that is long past us now, and it's all been burned, so for the betterment of mankind. Um, I, I got into Doctor Who back in college, because college is when you get into all the cool stuff anyway, really. Certainly. Um, and I started with... You know, Brad, you're up here in, in, in Northern California, I think, so you're probably familiar with the never-ending PBS fundraisers that they run with Doctor Who as their, as their I'm in, uh, media. I'm in Seattle choice. now, but I do re- I remember uh, I was living in California for a while, so I know exactly what you're talking about. PBS would have those on the weekends, like mm-hmm. 48 hours straight of something from uh, the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So that's, that's, that's where I first got into it, and it was uh, John Pertwee was the first one, first set that I ran across. And it was one of those things where they, they run like half an episode, and these were the old format episodes, so they were you know, two hours long and then chopped up into, I presume they were chopped up into chunks in the UK and delivered that way, and then here they would air them like in the full two hours, and then every hour or so they'd stop and they'd spend a half an hour showing you pictures of puppies and TARDIS t-shirts and, and, and asking you to support your local PBS station. So it was it was fabulously frustrating but uh but still very entertaining at the same time i is there any way at all i can convince you to give us just maybe two sentences about your fan fiction i'm dying to know at least tell us which doctor the fan fiction was about oh it would it would be it would be john pertwee and it involved time traveling golf <laughs> I couldn't be more intrigued if I tried. <laughs> and you burnt it? You didn't burn it. You didn't really burn it, did you? You still have I, it. You know what? It's I doubt I still have it. You know, when you when when you move back home with your parents because you can't get employed after you have a degree and you just have boxes and boxes of stuff. It was in one of those boxes of stuff and it has since it's either calcified somewhere in a basement. <laughs> Or it's uh, or it's been you know used as, as as tinder for the fireplace. So say, saying it's been burned is 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 safer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, have you been watching consistently since like the John Pertwee era? Have you have you come all the way through Doctors? Would that be Doctor like three through eleven, or, or did you take a break somewhere in there? I you know I'm actually just that sort of obsessive. I when I figured out 
that there were multiple doctors, and I didn't actually figure that out because this was before the internet. I didn't actually figure that out until they aired John Pertree's re- regeneration. Once I figured out that was the case, I went back and started with number one. Started with 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 uh, Hartnell, wow. with the original doctor, and started hunting them up to go all the way through. So I I have actually seen. I think there's a few of the second doctor I'm missing, and and then right about right about number five is when I dropped out. Mm. Simply because I couldn't get my hands on it anymore. I moved out of the Bay Area, and you no longer had you know that 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 glorious PBS access, <laughs> <laughs> or at least I didn't have the have the leisure to uh, to sit through forty eight hours of unadulterated Doctor Who. I understand. So I'm missing from I'm missing most of the fifth Doctor and the sixth Doctor. I think I saw a couple of Sylvester McCoy, and I did, not only did I catch, but I videotaped the American Travesty. <laughs> that was the Doctor Who movie that, that, that aired here. And we were all so psyched because it was supposed to have Spielberg behind it, and it was going to be this awesome thing. And then it was, it just didn't make, it didn't even make any sense to a Doctor Who fan. No. So. No. And then they resurrected it, and it's been awesome. It has indeed. So I, I think it's safe to say that you're pretty hardcore. You're pretty hardcore. You have set the bar pretty <laughs> high for Brad and Sanon. So uh, let me. I don't t- have the scarf. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a thing for celery. <laughs> but you, but you do have the sonic screwdriver, though. Uh, I, you know what? I did. It was stolen. I had. Oh I had what? Fun, oh, but no. it was stolen. Oh, it was no. stolen. I'm I'm going down to Comic Con this summer to acquire a new one. So, very sorry to hear that. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, Brad, can you match Kimberly's fandom? No, not at all. But I'm actually glad you came to me next because I think I'll be a good counterpoint to Kimberly. Um, I'm probably the newest, greenest newbie in this bunch. Um, I've only been into you know quote unquote into Doctor <laughs> Who since last year, so I'm brand new. Um, I got to say, growing up, I, I did see the PBS marathons that Kimberly referenced. I did used to live in California, and they would have just like, you know, a weekend full of, of stuff from the UK. Um, I didn't really ever watch it, though, because when I watched it, it was always some dude in a scarf sitting around talking, and like nothing was going on. And it was just really boring, and I had no clue what this was supposed to be. So I would just like skip it. And um, I mean, I eventually kind of got onto Red Dwarf thanks to PBS, but Doctor Who never clicked with me. Um, and as I got older, I started going to um, comic conventions. I was really, really deep into comics for a long time. Still am, but not as not as crazy as I used to be. But when I would go to these conventions, the only people who were ever talking about Doctor Who were like the uber nerds. I mean, I was a nerd for sure, but like I'm talking about the uber, uber super nerds, like the dudes with the greasy hair who only talked in like you know monotone voices, wore the ugly sweaters, and came with their moms. Like those were the only guys who ever knew what Doctor Who was. And I was like, why in God's name would I want to be part of that? Like, I wouldn't. There's nothing cool about that. So I just, I never got into Doctor Who at all. I had no desire to. Um, And then a couple years ago, I was up late. I was kind of at a bad point in my life, um, transitioning between some some major events. And I was just, like, feeling lost and flipping channels and had nothing to do. And I saw one episode. um, 
from series three and I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know what it was. I just watched and there was a monster on screen and there was a chick running away screaming and I'm like, well, okay, this looks okay. And I watched it and I was like, huh, I wonder if this is that Doctor Who that everybody's talking about. It might be. I don't know. And I just forgot about it. Forgot about it. Forgot about it. Didn't see anything. Didn't touch it until I got into Twitter full time. And then once I started uh, tweeting with people, I started seeing that a lot of people I really liked and really got along well with were saying a lot of really good things about the new reboot. So I thought, well, these are people I respect. They're very sharp. They're funny. I like them. I want to be like them. So maybe I should watch Doctor Who also. So I talked the wife into watching it with me. We had Netflix. And the whole you know series one through four was on Netflix, the new reboot series. And we thought, well, let's just, let's just give it a try. We'll just start and we'll see if we like it. Who knows? And if we don't like it, we'll just stop and watch something else. And we ended up watching seasons one through four within the span of six months. We went to watch Torchwood, the spinoff uh, uh, series. We watched the entire series of that within a couple months. And since then, it's like spurred us into watching like a million other UK series. So even though I am probably the newest, I think we've gone into it whole hog since then. And I think I saw you mention on Twitter the other day you were you were thinking about going back and watching a classic Doctor Who serial. Did you get an opportunity to do that? I did. I did. And in fact, it was last night. I kind of had a few things come up, but I, I put some time aside and I sat down to watch. I want It's not Game of Death because Bruce Lee wasn't in it. It was uh, <laughs> City, City of Death. No, City of the Dead with um, Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched part of it, and I got to say, it was it was bizarrely fascinating to watch to kind of compare and contrast with the way the new series is. And I didn't, I, I don't really have any feelings on it. I think I was just kind of in shock, just kind of watching the whole thing because it was so different. I think I actually really want to go back and watch watch it again or watch some more. But it was kind of it was kind of mind blowing, actually. Interesting. We'll come back to that because I. I, 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 I couple follow-up questions I want to go there but uh, let's let's go over to Sanan Sanan what is in your uh, Doctor Who wheelhouse my Doctor Who wheelhouse um, I think funnily enough out of the out of the three of us I'm the one who's probably watched the least uh, in that I've watched the, the first the the, the, um, the five series of the reboot but no Torchwood no Sarah Jane Adventures nothing like that um, my but I do have probably the most obscure first memory of Doctor Who, which uh, was from something like 1992. And it's a comic uh, relief, which is a sort of charity event here in the UK, which is on like a sort of a telephone. Um, and they have various sort of special shows. And one of them was a, a special sort of Doctor Who parody, which starred um, Rowan Atkinson of oh, yeah, Mr. Bean fame <laughs> as Doctor Who. <laughs> and um, it was it was surreal. Uh, and um, I think it ended with doc- him being turned into a woman. So he had Joanna Lumley from Absolutely Fabulous playing the Doctor and uh, ending up in a relationship with the Master, which was, <laughs> yeah, you know, probably the kind of fan fiction <laughs> that, <likes> to- <laughs> that Kimberly might have uh, seen on the, on the internet. Um, That's hot. That's really hot. <laughs> but... Uh, for, for me personally, you know, I, I was kind of like Brad. I, I associated Doctor Who with the kind of greasy-haired, nerdy uh, side of people, and um, I, it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. And then um, when I started going out with my girlfriend, who I'm still with, so this is about seven years ago, this is roughly when the reboot started, uh, she wasn't really into Doctor Who, but her housemates were. And she's very much one of these people who will latch on to anything that's on television just you know what's on fine i'll watch it oh then i'll watch the next 10 episodes of it as well um and she got into it 
and inevitably that mean that means I got into it kind of very reluctantly because I've watched the first episode of the first series and thought, okay, mannequins, this is really silly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have to say, I've, I've loved it since. And uh, I, whilst I may not be so hardcore in terms of you know peripheral stuff and uh, going back to the, the old series, uh, whenever a new episode is on, it's a, it's a must-watch thing for me. Fabulous. Fabulous. Uh, I, I'm probably closest to... Uh, boy, oh boy. I, you know, when I was... when I, uh, Probably Sinan or Brad, I fall somewhere in between the two of you. When I was a, when I was a kid, I was a very hardcore uh, Star Trek guy. And anything that wasn't Star Trek, I kind of shunned as being not Star Trek. Uh, I had a very good friend who tried to turn me on to Doctor Who and would accidentally turn on some Sylvester McCoy episodes... I don't know, this is probably 7th or 8th grade. And it was just, at the time, for me, unwatchable. Because it was just this old, grumpy guy ordering around this young girl named Ace. And uh, I I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't want to understand what was going on. I just wanted Picard and Riker and Captain Kirk. Why weren't they in Doctor Who? Uh, And so that was... uh, It was not until 2005 when I started reading... Uh, stories about the Doctor Who coming back and every single thing, every little tiny announcement, like, here's the new logo. And that would spawn, you know, 12 pages of forum posts, forum posts about the new logo. And here's the new TARDIS. And here's the new sonic screwdriver. And it was just inundated. And I was fascinated by how could people be interested in this? It's Doctor Who. I don't get it. Uh, but I ended up, I will admit, to torrenting uh, the entire first season, and I just sat down and started watching it. Um, and the reason I kept watching is because I knew Chris uh, or Christopher uh, Eccleston. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's right. Uh-huh. I knew he was leaving, and I knew he was going to regenerate, and I was fascinated behind the idea of regeneration. And what would that look like, and what, that, what would that be? So I kept watching, and as I watched... Uh, just found myself uh, just entranced with the concept and uh, excited, and, and I became very attached to Eccleston. And then when he, I know I knew he was leaving. Uh, when he actually left, I was very, I was very sad by that. And it, at that point, I knew I was hooked. So, yeah, I've watched all the modern shows, and I have gone back and watched uh, some of the old sort of Doctor team up episodes where, like, the first Doctor, the second Doctor, the third Doctor would get together and have an adventure. Uh, I've watched those just to get a taste of as many older Doctors as possible. But um, clearly, I think tonight, our focus will be on the modern series, the the Russell Davies, Stephen Moffat era, Eccleston, Tennant, Smith. Uh, We're going to talk about these Doctors and their companions, the stories we loved, the stories we didn't love so much. Uh, Certainly, we acknowledge the older Doctor Who, and and please, Kimberly, Brad, please feel free to jump in with with what you've seen. Uh, We acknowledge there are audiobooks and novels, uh, but you really don't want to hear uh, hear us talking about any of that. So... (laughs) Sanan, I want to go back to you before before we get into you know Eccleston versus Tennant versus Smith. I want to go back to you and ask you because it, 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 and and forgive the North American centricity of this question, but it is it is astounding to me that there is a nation on this planet where Doctor Who has been uh, not just embraced but fully and completely embraced 
by the popular culture. I mean, in, in the States, and Brad and Kim, correct me if I'm wrong, outside of, of nerd circles, Doctor Who is barely a blip on the radar. But in England, uh, the country that birthed Doctor Who, hugely popular. It, it, tell me what that's like. It sounds like utopia to me. <laughs> um, I think it's one of those things where if you're on the other side of the hill, maybe <laughs> it's not quite as, uh, as beautiful as it may seem. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I what what I do love about about Doctor Who is that it is so British, um, and and you know, and, and that extends to how budget it is, and you know, like you're talking about the regeneration, and, and I still think, well, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Twenty Four, for example, and I'm always amazed by how much money goes into that show, and what the great thing about being a Brit watching. Doctor Who is, is still thinking, oh, yeah, so you're filming in uh, Cardiff again. <laughs> or, you're, or you're filming in that same warehouse in London again. I've been there. <laughs> and, you know, um, it's, it's, whilst it's such a phenomenon, it's such a sort of quaintly British small thing. Um, but at the same time, we go crazy about quaintly British small things here. Um, you know, for example, Red Dwarf was one of the, another show which we go a bit nuts about. And again, that was a show that started on a, on a budget. So, you know, for example, when uh, in the end of series season four, when uh, David Tennant was leaving, you couldn't watch Christmas television here in the UK without seeing David Tennant appear on something. You know, he was on quiz shows, he was on guest shows, he was on all kinds of things. And you know, I think I, I think someone actually wrote an article tallying how many appearances he made across the Christmas period here in the UK. Something like 126, cool. which is you know, considering we only have like five terrestrial channels here, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, wow. So you know, I. I it's it's fine, but at the same time, you know, it's I'm I'm proud of it. At the same time, I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed by it because it's so it's so strange and ridiculous, and uh, you know, compared to kind of these big American things, which really feel much more uh, I don't know professional in some cases. <laughs> uh, it, it feels a little bit quaint and silly, but I, at the same time, I like it for its quaintness and its silliness. My understanding is that it airs kind of at an earlier hour, that it is uh, embraced. Is it embraced equally by children and adults? I mean, is it is it a, a show for the whole family? Who Who is it targeted to over there? I, I'm really glad you asked that because um, actually Striden, who, who Brad mentioned earlier, he, he told me to, to mention this because it is very family-orientated over here. It's 7pm uh, on BBC One usually, or sometimes even a bit earlier, sometimes 6 o'clock actually. Um, so, you know, very prime time. On, that'll be on a Saturday Sorry, so yeah, prime time, but sort of family prime time. Um, and, you know, there, we have things like, you know, sticker books and annuals here and uh, the comics. Obviously, there's, there's the Sarah Jane Adventures, which is the, the children's show, uh, the spin off. Um, at the same time, because it's been such a phenomenon in its, uh, in its recent incarnation, uh, we got the torture series, which is the most <laughs> surreal thing. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm completely, I don't know anything about torture. I watched um, one episode. I'm, I'm assured it's good, but I watched the first episode and I thought, oh God, this is, this is like after hours, Doctor Who. <laughs> this is Doctor Who blue. I can't watch this. <laughs> um, just too silly, too sexed up. Um, uh, which I can, I guess it kind of extends into how I sort of see Doctor Who. I, I like I said, I really kind of appreciate it for its, its silly family factor. I think it, once it gets a bit too serious for me, that's when it it all gets a bit uh, less enjoyable. And then, if I understand correctly, after an episode of Doctor Who ends, then there is something called Doctor Who Confidential. 
Oh, which I is have, kind I'm of like forced, I'm forced to watch Doctor Who Confidential by my girlfriend every single time. So um, we we don't have this in the United States. We don't have like here's a making see. of the episode you just watched. Uh, that concept doesn't exist over here. But what what is why do you why are you forced to watch it? What is it that <laughs> repulses you? Um. Well, I just I. I think any anything you watch the making of just after you've watched it makes you lose kind of any appreciation. <laughs> immediately, like, why do I, you know, I don't know why why am I immediately revisiting something I've just watched? Um, but but my girlfriend has to watch every single bit of Doctor Who that's on television now. That that's that's the way it is. So yeah, well, it, on the on BBC One, which is the main terrestrial channel, um, we have Doctor Who, and then on BBC Three, which is sort of like a satellite channel, a cable channel. Um, you have Doctor Who Confidential, it's a 15 minutes thing afterwards. And this is a thing that's very prevalent in the UK. You have these uh, side shows on satellite channels after the main show. So, for example, Pop Idol, you'll have like Pop Idol Extra or something. Um, you know, like the American Idol equivalent over here. Um, I think it's just because over here we're, we're, we're saps. We just don't get up and don't leave the television. So people know how to, to make us... Uh, you know, more and more stuff. Kimberly and Brad, I, listening to the the number of appearances that David Tennant made leading up to his exit from the show, if you polled a thousand people, how many of them in the United States would have any idea who David Tennant is? Oh God, like like one, maybe one, right? It the person would, asking would the question. <laughs> I don't know. The, the, there are a lot of people who have heard of Doctor Who. I, I find, mm-hmm. um, you know, who who you know, the reference sets off the voices in their head. Right? They they've heard it. They've run across it. They've seen a blip on TV, or they've run across it on BBC America, or they know a guy who knows a guy. But I think if you were to, if, if you were to say, you know, do you know Doctor Who? They would know. But if you were to say David Tennant, they'd be like, what? So I think it, it 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 would really depend on whether you're asking about the actor or the show. And, and plus, it depends where you'd be. I mean, if you went to like you know Comic Con or something, you know, okay, yeah, you'd have like a way better percentage. But if you're like you know downtown in some urban business district, then then nobody, you know. So in general, though, I think nobody, nobody or one. <laughs> I, it's funny because I was talking, uh, you know, Brad, obviously you watch the show with, with your wife. I was uh, talking about the idea for this podcast with my wife over dinner, and, and my wife tolerates my nerd habits as long as I don't attempt to include her. And I, uh, I, I said, uh, just as a test, I asked her, uh, honey, tell me everything you know about Doctor Who. And she said, I think it's for nerds. I said, okay, great. Uh, what else? She said, that's it. That's all I know. <laughs> um, and I said, you realize you've been in the same room as me when the show has been on. You didn't look up once and maybe saw a blue box or a guy with amazing hair. I mean, what? No, nothing? No, nothing. So, yeah, it's it's just remarkable to me that uh, it is so wildly popular in England and still sort of way, way under the radar here in the States. But um, Brad and Kimberly, how did you, in general, how did you watch it? I mean, how did, I mentioned I torrented all the shows. How did you guys 
Brad, you did Netflix, maybe? Yeah, we did Netflix. I mean, we went to, to see how much was there, whether I was going to have to track down an actual DVD or what. But they had, you know, season one through four of the new series. So we just, you know, made a bowl of popcorn and sat down and pushed play. Easy as that. So in, in that respect, I'm really grateful that uh, Netflix has the wide uh, range of shows that it does. I mean, not to plug Netflix because they don't really, you know, financially support us or anything. But, you know, yeah, Netflix was great for that. I, I went through a ton of stuff. The uh, yeah, they've got it on on instant watch too. So if you have a 360 or a PS3 or something, then you can the, the Doctor Who stuff is coming on to their instant watch feature, which is you know doubly addictive. I'm afraid. <laughs> I uh, I actually when I heard the buzz that it was starting, I actually watched it from episode one on BBC America when they started airing them. Mm. Um, and then when I heard about Torchwood, I paid some guy in Florida to get access to the BBC One feed and send me a DVD. So. <laughs> uh, I've done that with old Transformer episodes, honestly. So that sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> paying a guy who's over in this other state is going to make you a dub. I've done that. Yep. Somebody who has better access for now. Exactly. exactly. Until awesome. I get my satellite built. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, any other, any other uh, sort of U.S. versus U.K. thoughts before we before we move on to the to the big debate where we start arguing furiously? Well, I, I was just wondering in terms of how how well does the, the sort of family orientated nature come across over over there? Because you know it is a it is a big side of it over here. I would say. I mean, the, my kids watch it with us, um, and it's perfectly accessible to a younger age range, but I don't find science fiction live action in general to be something that people perceive as for kids. Right. You know, it's sort of a sort of a cultural difference. If it's science fiction, it's for teenagers and older. I mean, you can do stuff like Ben 10 and the cartoon stuff for the kids, but if you're if you're looking at live action stuff, most of the adults that I know don't think that it's something that kids can even access, access until they're, you know, 11, 12, you know, heading, yeah. heading into the tween, tween age. So, Totally. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I, I don't see that there's a lot of sci-fi out there aimed at younger kids. And I think that kids who are into sci-fi as younger ages are the ones who end up being ostracized and eating lunch by themselves uh, at school usually. Um, but my son, my oldest son, um, is nine and I just introduced him to Doctor Who for the first time um, a couple months ago. And I wasn't sure what he was going to make of it, but he actually really liked it like a lot. Um, in general, I don't think that anybody I know watches Doctor Who with their kids. Uh, I think I'm the only one except for maybe you guys here on the podcast. But he really liked it a lot except for it was actually a little scary for him at some points. Um, he's not a real fraidy cat, but we don't really expose him to horror or anything that's really on the scarier side. And when we watched a few of the episodes that had some of the, you know, the, the juicier monsters and some, you know, a higher body count, he actually got a little bit frightened. Um, but he actually really did like the Doctor a lot, and he has put in a request to watch more. So I, I think that's a pretty positive sign. Very cool. That's great. My son is going to be two in April, and he is fond of the opening credits. <laughs> there you go. So we're we're it's baby steps, but uh, yeah, he likes he likes watching the names flash on the screen and flying through the wormhole, or I'm sorry, the time vortex 
I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to get kicked off the internet for that F- slip Five up. listeners. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> Man, good thing I can edit that out. Um, fantastic. Well, well, should we should we brave uh, should we brave the waters of uh, who's your favorite doctor? Let's. Should we do it? Nine versus We're all reasonable people here. <laughs> Why don't why don't here's here's what I'm going to force each of you to do. I will I will say your name and all I would like you to do is uh give us your favorite doctor. Don't don't explain why yet. Just give us give us a number. Is it 9, is it 10, is it 11 or or Eccleston Tennant Smith and then let's see what we come up with. So uh Kimberly, I will I will give you the first the first opportunity. If I have to pick a favorite, it's going to be Tenant, but it's really tight. <laughs> Honestly. Sinan. Eccleston. <laughs> Brad. Smith. <laughs> wow. You're just being contrarian, we can tell. <laughs> um, uh, I... Th- to this to this moment i have not made my decision but i am i am going to say tenant so we no win. surprise tenant no wins surprise. tenant wins yeah i figured tenant <laughs> is the best it's 2 versus 1 versus 1 um <laughs> let's well let's let's start with Eccleston. uh Sinan, what is your uh what is your argument for mr Eccleston? what's my argument for mr Eccleston? uh well, okay, let, let's go back to that, that first episode then with the mannequins, which I kind of hated the first time. Um, because, like I said, I, wasn't re- I didn't really understand Doctor Who, and I just thought, this is, this is stupid, there are mannequins, why are there mannequins killing people? Uh, I just couldn't get my head around the very basic concept of mannequins killing people. Um, but then I, then I returned to it, and watching that episode again, what I, I think it encapsulates him brilliantly, because what, what I love about Eccleston's portrayal of Doctor Who is it's... It, it's it oscillates wildly from you know uh over enthusiastic energetic uh excessively uh kind of bubbly and bright to very very dark and twisted and sinister and evil and um i feel like you know you see a lot of that in, in david Tennant's portrayal but it, it, it maybe because it's the order i you know that it was in i feel like tenants never really got out the shadow of, of Eccleston's portrayal of Doctor Who that way. And I think um, as well, I'm going to get my digs and Dennis. No, I'll leave my digs for Tennant later, but I, I think there are, there are some things about David, about David Tennant's portrayal which are, are weaker, um, which we can get into later. But I, I just think um, it, it, made, it made him genuinely engrossing to watch uh, in the first season. You never quite knew what he was going to do. Uh, you couldn't really get a, a handle on what, his take was on the situation and um you know in that in that uh i think it's it's the episode on the space channel the uh, the television channel where he leaves the kid to go back to his mum with the device back in his head and it's just it's such a sinister dark thing to do but and yet at the same time it came across very funny and i think that comes a lot in uh in the way eccleston portrays the doctor he's he's almost He's he's very good at um, being kind of offhand with the dark things that he does, um, and I, I 
I very much appreciate that. And I think, uh, and especially in the last two episodes, he was he was brilliant along with, and Billy Piper as well was a, a fantastic. You know that that those last two episodes in the in the first season are two of my favorites. I like how you worked the catchphrase in there. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can't you can't avoid saying that word when you talk about Wilson. <laughs> and I said sorry as well with uh, David Tennant. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll talk about. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll get there. Um, my, my two favorite Eccleston scenes, the first is in the episode Dalek, when he sees the Dalek, and he completely freaks out, and he just flips. And you haven't really seen him like that to that point. Uh, and there there is a terror there. And to see someone who has been so confident to that point flip out to that degree... Uh, it really just there's there's a gravitas there that I don't feel like Tennant or Smith could have brought, and, and I think part of that is probably Eccleston's age. Uh, I think to to attain that level of, of gravitas, you need uh, you, you need some years under your belt. You need uh, you need some lines on your face, and, and that right there was was something that really endeared me to him. Um, my other favorite Eccleston scene is his last scene. Uh, when he is about to regenerate with uh, Rose. And it really just kind of sums up for me uh, their relationship. There is a very much... uh, The way that he talks her through what's about to happen is very much, to me, like... Uh, you know, a parent at the doctor with with their child who's about to get get a shot. And, you know, the child says, is this going to hurt? And as a parent... You say yes, it is going to hurt, uh, but and and that's exactly how he he says uh, yes, I am going to regenerate. You're not going to see me again. But then he kind of spins it in a way that that I think makes her feel better. He goes into the you were fantastic, and so was I. And there's that smirk, and, and then he regenerates. And it's that to me is just um, just a just a wonderful moment. And and when I think of him, I, I think of I think of that scene. Um, Kimberly, you had mentioned uh, you, you were vacillating between Tennant and was it Eccleston? It w- you know, it, it was Eccleston primarily. It, Tennant and Eccleston are my two favorite. I'm still sucking out Smith. He, you know, there's, there's, I, I think he's finally clicked with the character after the first um, season. But I think, I mean, Eccleston was just. The the moment you mentioned with the Daleks went so far beyond that particular episode because th- there's this huge giant gap in the history of the show between basically between Sylvester McCoy and when Eccleston takes over and somewhere in there or you know this time traveling show could have happened quote any time there's been this time war and it's been mentioned before but that moment is just like a sledgehammer to to the mythos. When you suddenly realize that whatever has gone on that we have missed is massive. Mm-hmm. That it could freak him out this badly seeing a Dalek. Because previously, while the Daleks were, you know, horrible and, and frightening and inexorable, um, you know, we had stairs. And, and there, was, there was always just sort of this, okay, yes, it's the Daleks. We know how to handle Daleks type attitude with, with the old doctor. So that was, 
you know, so so Eccleston had these really brilliant moments and these really dark moments peppered in there. But Tennant was meaner. And they tried to do that, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, geeking out here a little bit. They tried to do that with the Nutso Doctor um, back in the original series, but, you know, it, it never came off very well. And, and, and Tennant's character has this mean, petty streak in him that we haven't seen before and that you don't normally see in a heroic character. And most of the time, it's tempered by the companions, which made it... Well, which first of all gave you know the companions a reason for being there, other than plot devices and eye candy. <laughs> um, but it, you know, and and his exit, while while perhaps a bit protracted, uh, I think was the was, you know, one of the nobler ones out there. In 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 that we actually you know get the impression of this character. You know, nobody nobody ever thinks that the doctor might not want to regenerate. Right. I mean, you always think about about the the idea that look, you're escaping death. Who's not going to want to do that? But you know, after 900 years and 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 developing a, I guess, an affection for oneself, I think that's the first time they've looked at that. And I think Tennant carried it off very well. And then, of course, comparing him to Barty Crouch in Harry Potter or J- Crouch Jr. in the Harry Potter movies, which was just. It's <laughs> a terrifying comparison. <laughs> like, oh my God, Doctor Who is insane. Uh, you know, I think I think they. I mean, I mean, both actors brought their A game, and I think both actors are are supremely talented. But I think that Tennant's character was a little. I don't want to say subtle. He was a little bit classier. He was a little bit, you know, the when when Eccleston flipped and you saw the sort of the meaner side of the Doctor with him, it was very brutish, if you will. It was it was it was a much more primal thing versus what you saw with Tennant, which was much, you know, much more. It's almost like you got a glimpse of the Master occasionally mm. with the way he played it. So, but like I said, it's really tight. <laughs> Because I, I I feel a, a tiny bit like I should defend defend because I, mean, I I'm the same I I'm very much split between Tennant and Eccleston, um, and I actually like him. Yeah, I'm, I'm still feel like I'm sussing out Matt Smith. Um, I'm not made my mind up yet at all. Um, but the thing is with with Tennant, and it's strange because he's a Shakespeare, you know he's an actor with a Shakespearean background. Um, and unless you know that maybe that does explain it. Um, the the thing that makes me just put him slightly behind Eccleston is that he's got a lot of memes. Uh, there's a lot of things that repeat with him. Uh, so, you know, not just the sorry, I'm so sorry thing, which, uh, you know, someone linked me to a video on Twitter just before the podcast of uh, David Tennant saying sorry 120 times from seasons two to four, <laughs> which uh, you have to watch. It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm there's actually one, one <laughs> There's one point when, uh, where Captain Jack says... Uh, I think you're supposed to say sorry now. <laughs> it's a good time. Sorry, <laughs> it kind of summed up the whole video. Um, but it, it's things like you know when he's when he's angry, he grits his teeth in this very definite way. It's always the same face when he's uh, when he's his smile is is so always the kind of same smile. It always feels over the you know just I don't know. He's it, it's difficult to put into words. No, in, in, just in terms of uh, it always feels like he's going into a, into the same 
stereotype with his with when he's trying to be you know angry or over the top or whatever um and i found eccleston more unpredictable in that sense um and i just i i don't know maybe it's because tenor was there for three seasons and you get used to a character a bit more and an actor a bit more but you know i got a bit tired of the i'm sorry i'm so sorry by season four i've got to say Brad, what about you? I know that you were a very you were very much pro Eccleston, and and I recall you moving into the Tenant era with uh, a great deal of displeasure. Uh, you, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, first off, I do want to echo everything um, that everybody has said about Eccleston so far. I think he did a f- tremendous job. I was deeply, deeply, deeply disappointed that he only lasted one season. I mean, I loved his portrayal of the Doctor. It was not only the first portrayal but in some ways I, I kind of i kind of regret that it was the first because i think he did such a great job um of like has been mentioned like you know you never knew whether he was going to be loopy or whether he's going to be serious or whether he's going to be really dark and and mad and you know his range of of the character was much more varied i mean when when i was watching him i really did feel like i could believe this guy was 900 years old like I, he looked to me like he had been through some things like he had witnessed things, and 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 I could, I could buy him as the Doctor. I really did. I love 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 Eccleston, and it was very close for me between Eccleston and Smith. Um, as far as Tennant goes, Tennant is a Muppet. He's a Muppet with better hair. He gave one note performances all the way up until the end of season four. At which point, I feel like he started to do a good job, and then he was off the show. I really did not care for Tennant at all. Um, I watched the show just because I, I kind of knew he was leaving, so I wanted to hang in there until he was gone. <laughs> and I liked I liked his companions the best. I know we're going to hold off on that discussion until the next question, but I, I liked his companions. They were really good, and they often saved the show for me in a lot of ways. I did not like Tennant at all. I just fail, fail all the way from start to finish for me. So the reason I picked Smith was because I really like – the fact that he is kind of he's kind of laissez-faire about things and I do agree he didn't really get his take on the doctor locked in until maybe the end of season 1 but he's so like goofy and alien looking and he's got this kind of akimbo way of walking and he does carry some of the Eccleston tendencies of you never quite know which way he's going to go I mean I think in general he's much 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 lighter than Eccleston he doesn't have the same depth of darkness that Eccleston did, which I really liked, but he's got a little bit. We saw a little bit at the end, which I really liked. And I just like his, his manner. He feels to me as though he is alien at times. And I think that was one thing that was really lacking in David Tennant for me. I never, ever felt as though David Tennant was an alien or that he was from a different society or civilization. I always felt like he was just a guy. He was just a guy. He didn't seem like he was alien. He didn't seem like he was 900 years old. I didn't get the sense that he had been through 900 years worth of turmoil. It just it just fell flat for me. But I think Eccleston nailed it really well. But I do really like Smith's Smith's manner, his 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 portrayal, physical, and also just that kind of loosey goosey. You know, it's almost like there's like wires loose in his head, and then you think he's kind of off his rocker, but then he kind of pulls it together, and it just it just kind of works for me. It fits. I think he's got a good mix of alien and human, and it just it feels really right to me there's a happy-go-lucky quality to matt smith almost as though the burdens and that were placed on yes 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 exactly lifted like exactly all the rose drama gone 
the time war. We don't talk about it anymore. And it's like he's been just reborn. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with, you know, it's a creative change. There's a new guy behind the scenes running the show who doesn't want to bring all that baggage to his version of the show. So uh, it does feel so much, it does feel so much lighter. Um, I think Tennant, and the reason I picked Tennant, I find him to be uh, just eminently watchable. The guy just, he, he bleeds charisma. And he, and he could be sitting in a chair reading a phone book, and I just would, I, I could watch him all day long. <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, you would not. <laughs> he, he may be bleeding charisma for you, but if I saw him and he was bleeding, I would just let him bleed. <laughs> oh. Now, that's not nice. That's, I'm sure David Tennant would save your life. Or if he, he couldn't, might. he would tell you that he's so, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, my, my read on the Tennant character, and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, uh, is that he is being written almost as a manic depressive. He's kind of bipolar in that when he is, uh, when he is, is uh, thinking about Rose and he's thinking about the time war and all that he's lost. Uh, he is just uh, he, he he is just not much fun to be around. He is he is uh, he is dark and sad and, and unpleasant. Uh, but then when he comes out of that and he is uh, he, he's he's got a mission and he's got an objective and he's got something that he's he's working towards and and uh, it, people to save. He is so just vibrant and excited and I. Of the three guys, if I needed someone, uh, if I was going to follow somebody, if I wanted someone to save my life, if I wanted someone to save my family, I would follow Tennant just because uh, there, there's just, I don't know, this intangible appeal, this, this trust that he engenders uh, that I don't get as much from Eccleston and Smith. I am very fond of all three, but Tennant, there's just something about him, uh, and it's the charisma that I, I just find, uh, I'll, I'll use the word attractive, I, I, I just feel drawn to that character uh, in a way I was not to the other two. Um, not so fond of him when he is saddled with the depression. And we'll, when we talk about Rose and, and Rose's story arc, we'll... we'll uh, We'll talk about that. Hey, Tim. I'm actually glad you brought that up. Um, I have a couple things to add that really quick. Um, number one, man crush. little sick. Uh, number two, I think that quality that puts you off of the other doctors is the quality that I like. Because I actually like that they felt, to me, both Smith and Eccleston, like, like they could make choices that maybe would not make you personally happy, but to their alien sensibilities, like it makes sense. Like sometimes we see Smith making choices that just – a normal person wouldn't make, you know, like he puts somebody in danger and you're like, what are you doing? And if you, you know, keep it in context that he's not a human being, he is a time Lord, then it makes sense. And I like that there's that off putting that to me is kind of what sells the character to me. And that was one thing to me anyway, that tenant lacks. And maybe that's, maybe that's why you like him more than I do. What do you guys think, Kim and Sanan, you guys pick up on any of that or what is your feeling? Well, to kind of counter the, the, the Matt Smith side of things, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think what, David Tennant and Christopher Eccleston both share is they, they felt larger than life to me. Uh, and this to kind of speaks to what Tim was saying about watchable. I found them uh, immensely more watchable than I find Matt Smith. I like him as a character, as a, as a, I like him as an actor. I think the awkwardness and the goofiness is, is fun and 
you know, I, I agree with you completely, Brad. He feels much more like a, an alien trying to interact with, with humans. But he's so subdued some of the time and so subtle that um, it's, it's quite a culture shock from the tenant era. And, you know, I, I guess for you, Brad, that's a, a welcome culture shock. For me, <laughs> yeah. if, 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 you know, for, 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 for me and I think for most Doctor Who fans who, you know, Dave Tennant was a very popular uh, Doctor, um, it's just, it's a bit difficult to transition into into the Smith era. And I, I think maybe it, he's very, from what I, I'm told, he's very close to kind of the older, you know, the, the, the Doctors of, you know, before, um, a bit more old school. And um, maybe that's why I don't quite take him because I've not really got any affection for the, I mean, I've not watched more than a few episodes of the old Doctors, so. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, he does. Smith does have a. a d- in between his frenetic moments, he d- they do play him as a slower character than, you know, a little more. I mean, a little. Uh, the the storylines seem to be paced a little less manic for him. Tennant was always either standing around looking stylish or running around like a maniac. <laughs> uh, and and don't get me wrong, I I appreciate standing around looking stylish as uh, as do many people. But it was his, his um, the the writing for that version of the Doctor was very much either on or off, on or off, on or off. And he was a much more human Doctor than Smith. Smith really does feel like he's an alien. You know things like fish sticks and custard which many people i know have now tried unfortunately <laughs> uh, the uh you know so the they have gotten into that sort of alien goofiness although i think previous doctors were much more arch about it than than he is he's just sort of boggled that you know normal people don't eat fish sticks and custard and you know, whereas John Pertwee's doctor would have looked down his nose at you for not liking fish sticks and custard. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, uh, uh, I think it definitely harkens back to that a bit. I, I, I like Matt Smith. I, I do. But I think his performance peaked in the first 20 minutes of the first episode. I don't think he was ever better than when he was with young Amelia Pond. And clearly the, the premise of casting him against a young girl was to address the age issue because there were so many who felt he was just too young to play the doctor. So cast him against a young girl to, to make the age difference more pronounced. But I felt like his rapport with her was stronger than his rapport with, with anyone else throughout uh, his season. I don't entirely buy the fact that he is so unfamiliar with human customs for example, when he was with the um, the episode where he was living in in the uh, the apartment with the couple, sort of yes. the, the husky guy and, and the girl, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they were housemates, and uh, and he didn't. He, there were just simple human customs, like the, the kissing on the cheeks. That as a nine hundred year old guy who has had more than his share of experiences with humans, I think it went a little bit too far in him not uh, being familiar with, with just basic human customs and courtesy. Uh, and, and that's where I felt it, it just... And, and that's not so much Matt Smith. Maybe that's more the writing. Uh, but um, I don't... Like I said, I haven't quite settled in on, on him yet. Um, 
So I'm kind of I'm kind of with you there. Uh, but Brad, he's your he's your favorite over Eccleston. I'm I'm so surprised to hear you say that. It was it was really tight. It was really really tight. Um, but I got to say, I I don't like it when the Doctor is too human, and I think that. Um, I, and I, I don't want to downplay Eccleston's performance because I love him. I really do. But I just, I just love that alienness about him. It just really does something for me. It just kind of sells the character to me. So I, I give him the edge, but it's a very, very, very slight edge. Eccleston is still, you know, always, always gonna have a special place in my heart. <laughs> Did someone say too human? Sorry, oh. I have to do that. <laughs> oh, nice! Wow, wow, Sinan, well done. I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and F. <laughs> 50 podcast points to Sinan. Well done. Yep. about rose please have we have we made our way through the doctors can we talk about rose we're ready i think we can talk about rose i think we're ready all right we're prepared i i think for me a highlight and probably my favorite moment of any of the five series is the end of the second season rose's departure uh the scene on the beach where the doctor we all know the scene i'm talking about they have established that Rose is going to be trapped in a parallel universe. She can never come back. They will never see each other again, despite what we know ends up happening. Uh, and the doctor and Rose are talking on, on, on the beach. Uh, Rose is hope, hopelessly in love with the doctor. The doctor knows that uh, there are just a few moments left. He almost says, I love you. The transmission cuts off, and, and he's alone. He's by himself. And in that moment, you feel what it must be like to go 900 years and constantly be losing the people that you have grown fond of. The people that you have protected, they always leave. They always move on. Uh, to me, that is my favorite performance. And, and to me, the highlight of, of the Rose character uh, and she, as sort of the first companion that I followed, that was a, a very powerful and very difficult moment for me to watch. And I'm, I'm easily emotionally moved by things. And that just killed me to see that happen. Were you sad to see Rose go or were you thrilled to see Rose go? Because there were a lot of people who, who were just happy to get rid of her. Um, I wonder what your take is on that. Uh, Kimberly, your, your thoughts on Rose? I, you know... I, on the one hand, I was sad to see Rose go 
because the idea of the doctor actually having a relationship with one of his companions uh, rather than just dragging them around the universe by the ear is sort of a fan favorite um, concept, right? That there's something else going on in the TARDIS. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, from, from the cold, hard uh, science fiction writer's perspective, she had to go, right? There was no way to continue her after a certain point. I mean, it, it, it made much better storytelling, and I think it made for a much better um, conclusion to, 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 to split them like that. And I, I think it was very well written, and I think that as a fan of the show, it was heart-wrenching to see that. And that was, it was beautifully written. It was beautifully executed. Um, but from the, per, from the perspective of somebody who, you know, who is looking at this from a storytelling perspective it was you know it was necessary it was a necessary cut um you simply could not have maintained a relationship like that and kept the show as it is mm-hmm. you know it would have turned into you know the honeymooners in space <laughs> um, so, so so on the one hand I, I you know i i it it was heart-wrenching and on the other hand i was like oh thank god they're not going to try and do that right <laughs> Just you just get a taste of it, and that's all. That's all you need. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think um, um, we'll get onto her in a, in a second, I'm sure. But Martha Jones's character is entire proof of why it would have been a bad idea to bring oh my God, Rose I back. Martha Jones. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, before we get onto Martha Jones, I mean, um, I, for me, Rose is, is my is my favorite companion, and to give it kind of a backstory. Which may not, you know, come over in, 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 to Americans. Um, she's played by by Billy Piper, who was a pop star over here. That was how she first came to fame as a sort of, uh, I think, seventeen or sixteen year old pop star who had a few hits, and then uh, her career didn't really take off. And then she came back and did a period drama and got a lot of rave reviews. And then she was brought back into Doctor Who. But there was a lot of a lot of cynicism over her acting ability. What I found impressed me so much about Billy Piper is her range across um, the first two seasons of Doctor Who. You know, she she was so convincing as this, and I don't know again if this word isn't going to carry across, but Chav gets kind of sort of lower class urban uh, mm-hmm. character. Um, and yet when, say, at the end of season one, when she's consumed by the the essence of the TARDIS or whatever, she's, at, you know, the change in her character is, is very... Um, palpable um and it's very well acted again when she's consumed by um cassandra in uh, season two again very well acted and there's these moments where she, uh, you know she actually steals the limelight away from the doctor in a few episodes and i think that's i i would only say one of the other companions across the other across the five seasons have really done that has really taken the limelight away from the doctor in an episode so um you know big ups for uh, for rose <laughs> <laughs> Brad, what about uh, what about you? What do you think about Rose? Um, you know, I really liked Rose. I do have a special uh, special affection for Rose. I really liked her in season one. Um, I don't know what a Chav is, uh, Sanan, but I, I kind of <laughs> get what you mean about her being kind of like you know, uh, I, I hate to say, it, but like you know, kind of a low class kind of a person who's you know not rich, just kind of yeah. Well, we know we all know what that kind of means. Um, right. So I liked that pairing, and I thought it was really neat. Um, I have to say that I kind of. I kind of fell out of love with her for most of season two. It was something happened in the switchover between seasons for me. And it was like, she got kind of 
I don't know, like weird and kind of muttery. And she kind of got a little bit smarmy. Like to me, her attitude changed a little bit and it lost uh, some of the quality of Rose that I liked. It was almost like she was getting too smug being with the doctor. I don't know whether that was purposely written or whether that was just a shift in the way she was portraying Rose. But I didn't really care for her during that stretch. And then she redeemed herself at the end of season two. I really, like you guys said, I mean, it was a great scene. It was a great arc. I mean, it was just a really powerful moment. I mean, I think my wife and I were both just like, oh my God, that, uh, how can we be watching this? This is so painful. But but again, it was it was totally necessary and, and there was no way it could have continued. I mean, it would have just been stretching the, the series to the point of disbelief. I mean, it just, it would have snapped any suspension of disbelief to keep having Rose around and, and to continue that arc. And, and so instead of rather than that, uh, you know, that senseless continuation, I think what we got, this poignant parting was, was something that I think everybody really appreciated, even though we did need the Kleenex for it. So I, I do like Rose quite a bit. And then came Martha Jones. I think I heard somebody use the word hate. <laughs> that would be me. Kimberly, would you like to talk about Martha Jones? I, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't hate Martha Jones because I have been Martha Jones. I have been the, you know, young woman attracted to a powerful personality that you know is never going to return that affection. Um, and that's probably part of the reason that I hate her so much is because I have I have been there and seeing that again and just wanting to smack her upside the head and say, you know, snap out of it was, you know, uh, that was a, they, they wrote her as a sort of a, a very real character that way. Um, but, and, and I liked her much better later on when she was working for unit and much more a personality of her own rather than such a puppy. If that makes any sense, you know, she sort of followed him around with big eyes the entire time she was, she was, uh, she was with the doctor. And I think that, and and again, I think that, that, that they wrote, they did a good job when she finally left and it was, you know, it was clear that it was a decision that she was making and it wasn't like the doctor's dumping her at an airport like he did with Sarah Jane. Um, so it, it, uh. You know, I I can appreciate her, but I do not like her at all. <laughs> she came across to me as um as Rose Light. That was the problem. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, especially in the writing for her. And I think it's no no um, disparagement on the actress at all. I think she did a fine job. I think it was, she was just a poorly written character. In terms of you know how. I think in the first two seasons, what was great about Rose's character is that you got to know her, got to know her family as well, and they became mm. really important, you know, fixtures in the in some of the plots. They tried to do the same again with Martha, and it just felt it just didn't work. It it felt very much like trying to um, shift the same idea into a plot line which just wasn't going to take it. And again, you know, it, the problem with the Doctor essentially ignoring. Martha for the whole season is that the kind of the, the the show ignored her a bit as well. She got shuffled off to side sort of things a lot of the time, um, whereas you know Rose kind of made herself a part of uh, major plot lines a bit more. Um, so I wasn't you know no, I didn't hate her at all, same same like Emily, but I was quite happy to see her go at the end of the season three. You guys are cold. You guys are cold, cold, cold. <laughs> I liked Martha Jones quite a bit, and I. You said you're going to leave. You're going to leave David Tennant to die, and you're saying we're cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally, exactly. 
No, I mean, seriously, I think, Kimberly, you had a really good point. I think that she was really well-written because I have known plenty of people who have been hopelessly in love with somebody else and just followed them around and made really stupid decisions and, you know, let them walk all over them. And that's just how people are sometimes. And so I liked that. But also, the reason, one of the reasons I liked Martha Jones so much was because she brought out a side of David Tennant that I think he needed. And he brought, she brought out his dick side. And he was a dick to her throughout the entire season. He picked her up on the rebound. He treated her badly. He was rarely nice to her. And that was what I liked about it because we finally got to see this other side of him that we didn't see with Rose at all. And so... It, it sucked to me that he treated her so badly, and I felt really bad for her that she was just like this doormat for him. Um, but I liked the interplay, and I liked that it was kind of a dysfunctional fit. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't quite right. Like, you knew she wasn't going to stick around. He didn't like her that much, and her lovey-dovey attitude couldn't continue forever. But I thought it was a really normal, believable kind of dynamic that just didn't work. And I've seen plenty of people have that dynamic, so it was really nice to see that echoed in the show. Um, I just like I liked her in general too, but I, I really like that mechanic the best. I, I just didn't like that her entire character was defined by her unrequited love for the doctor. And, and really everything that needed to be said about unrequited love was said in the scene between the doctor and Rose uh, at Bad Wolf Bay. So it, to me, we, we were just kind of, we were wasting our time with Martha there. That we weren't learning anything new about the doctor uh, and her character uh, was not interesting enough uh, on its own. And, and I would disagree with, with Sinan. I, I don't think the actress was particularly good. Uh, I don't think the writing was good. I don't think she was good. Uh, she was definitely better when she came back, uh, as you said, Kimberly, uh, later on. But uh, really, really had no use for Martha Jones and, and actually kind of forgot about her for a time. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. 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 Isn't that bad? It's terrible. Sick burn. That's, that's cold. That's it, really cold. Particularly when she was replaced with someone who I think is an outstanding companion, and that was Donna Noble. Brad, I know you're a huge Donna Noble fan. I love Donna. Donna is by far, by a wide, wide margin, my favorite companion of the Doctor. I thought she just did a fantastic job. I loved everything about her. I thought she was like hilarious. She was a perfect foil for Tennant's nonsense. She really, you know, cracked the whip on him a few times and kind of kept him in line. She was also really human. I mean, she had she humanized him a little bit by by making him see, you know, that some of his decisions were were, were kind of cold and unfeeling, which I think was fine because you know he's supposed to be this alien, so I think it was okay that he had those feelings. But she was a good counterbalance to him. I really also liked her her uh, the acting. I mean, it was just it was exciting to watch her for me because she was so over the top and 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 loud and she wasn't afraid to be who she was and she wasn't you know she wasn't like Martha how she was kind of cowed by the doctor a little bit and she wasn't Rose and it was just she was just kind of who she was and she knew she wasn't going to end up with the doctor and she was along for the ride and she was loving life and I just loved like every single thing about Donna Noble I mean every time she was on screen that was my favorite moment I just I loved her so much uh, kind of two sides to that. I mean, the, the first thing is, again, this is kind of a sort of unique thing of being over here rather than in America, but um, the actress who played her, Catherine Tate, um, she has her own sketch show here on the BBC. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of her characters are very Donna-like, um, very sort of loud, abrupt, <laughs> rude, kind of uh, generally larger-than-life characters. Um and the worry watching her in, in season four uh, was that she's playing 
what the same cards in the in the sketch shows. But um, once you once I got past that cynicism, I, I agree. Brad, I I really really like. So it's not quite as good as Rose for me. But um, what I really appreciate about her character is that. Um, and it's established in the first episode of season four when <laughs> when uh, she kind of invites herself onto the TARDIS and the Doctor says, uh, I'm just really looking for a mate. And she goes, you want me to mate with you? <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 it was, I'm not going to do that, Sunshine. And it's just it, it, this immediate establishment that there's not going to be any romantic involvement between either of them. And it just makes for a much more interesting dynamic between the two. It's great to not have love as an agenda for one season. In, in yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. They they did a good job with her too in rolling her family in, which which was yeah. one of the things somebody mentioned early on about about Rose Rose's story arc, is that and and one of the things in particular I love about Doctor Who is at the close of a season you can go back and look through the previous episodes and go and and follow the the map say okay this ties in here we saw this guy in this episode we saw this happen here we and it's just like this giant like the the final episode is this massive payout that you know every every f- fan is begging for you know and usually when with with something produced here in the US you get something like lost where you know there's supposed to be this massive payoff and they just bollocks the whole thing like you know like you wouldn't believe but you so at the end of every season there's just this it's like they they roll out this map and you can suddenly see how all of these pieces that you've seen throughout the entire season come together into the final, you know, final episode or final two episodes. They did a great job with the bad wolf. They did, you know, just when you were forgetting about the bad wolf or writing it off as a, a red herring storyline, they would bring it back and hit you in the face with it. And they did the same thing with with uh, with Donna Noble's storyline, which was just fabulous. With her dad keeps popping up. And I had completely forgotten that her father pops up in the Rose storylines as, you know, one of the street vendors in the Christmas Day episode. Um, you know, so it's just, you know, all of a sudden you're just like, dude! <laughs> <laughs> Donna's, uh, Donna's burnout, where she, uh, she becomes the Dr. Donna, and she really, she really becomes, I, I got the sense that she finally becomes the person that she has dreamt of being yeah. and totally, and, totally. And, and, and it's so, she's so just overjoyed and it's so wonderful to see her that way. And, and it just, it just lends this tremendous tragedy when you, you get a sense that, Oh, she's not, obviously she, you know, she's not going to be able to maintain this, but you don't predict, at least I didn't, uh, how that was going to turn out. This this awful tragedy that she's going to forget everything that happened with her and the doctor, and, and it's so it's just it's just profoundly sad. Definitely, like you know, you said that the ending of season two is tragic. I found the ending to season four much more tragic. Mm. That that scene where she basically um, can't even remember the doctor uh, at the end of season four, and he's you can see in his face that he. He just didn't want something, a glimmer in it, and uh, you know it. it that is tragic. Cause, like we don't, you know, it just plays in the whole thing of being forgotten and after we die, and um, you know, and then of course the doctor is about to regenerate. So uh, it, I thought it was an, an, a really powerful ending, season four. Yeah. It was, and she she did a, a masterful job of of taking her character back to where she started. 
Yeah. I mean, she started out as really obnoxious. You know, the first couple times, you know, when, when we first see her in the wedding dress episode, the one-off, you're just like, oh, my God. How how can a human being like this even function <laughs> in society <laughs> without somebody hitting her with a baseball bat? Um, and by the, you know, after, after they take all those memories away, suddenly the, the character development becomes clear. You know, when when she sees the doctor and, you know, basically she's just a total bitch. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you realize just what they've done with that character over the arc of the uh, of of her story. And then all of a sudden, I mean, that's almost an even greater tragedy is that, oh, my God, she's gone back to being who she was. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. this petty minded, small person that, uh, you know, that that she started out as. Uh, so I guess one more uh, one more major companion. I do want to talk about Captain Jack uh, in a bit, but uh, Amy Pond, Amelia Pond. Anybody anybody have any strong feelings pro or oh, sure. against? Oh, sure. Con con <laughs> against. Boring. Hate Amy Pond. So boring. It was a real shame that they didn't keep her a child. Although I know that would have been kind of weird to have her be like the child companion. But I do agree with you, Tim, that the interplay between Matt Smith and the child Amy Pond was great. I loved it. It was just so precious and charming and wonderful. And then Amy Pond as an adult is just leaves me absolutely cold. I do not see what she brings to the show. She's flat. She's dull. I think she's kind of obnoxious. She's just kind of I just I just don't like her. I don't particularly care for the way that she interacts with Matt Smith. I don't think that her performance is very special. She doesn't have any high points for me. She's just this giant flat boring just dead zone in the show for me and i just really don't care for her at all and in fact even though i don't really care for rory her uh robo boyfriend on the show i actually like (laughs) him more than her and it would have been fine with me if it was like rory and not amy because i just i just don't like amy it's not that i hate her but she just adds nothing for me and i really wish they would get rid of her and get somebody who is more interesting to to play off of matt smith i just don't care for even a bit See, I, 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 I don't care for her in a, in a, you know, staring at her being stylish sort of sense like I do with David Tennant. But I could, I love her voice. I love her accent. I could listen to that voice read the phone book for an hour and, you know, just be enthralled by it. But I do, I do agree. I think, I think she's a bit overbearing in a way that, that Donna was able to pull off, but that she can't. And I, what I really would like to see is just maybe a few bromance episodes with with the Doctor and Rory because there is there's there's a lot of material there to be mined I think between between Rory and the Doctor but I think I think Amy's screwing it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, finally somebody agrees with me. Thank God. Thank you. Do you want someone else to agree with you? <laughs> yes, please. More the merrier. Absolutely. I mean. When I was when the, when I was watching the new season, uh, I, I was paying attention to my Twitter feed. And everyone's going, "Oh, she's really beautiful. She's she's fantastic." Uh, all these kind of superficial things, and I'm with you guys. I just she's dead weight, a burden really to the Doctor in a lot of season five, and uh, just not interesting. Sorry. Thank you. I have to say, it's one of the the, the delightful things about getting shows from the UK over here in the US is that you the the UK programmers allow for a much broader physical range in actors. Yeah. I mean you turn on the stuff here in the US and it's like carbon copies 
tall blonde, you know. Everybody's way too skinny in America. It's yeah, unhealthy no... skinny. And it, and even the character, even the characters that aren't, which you know, they they either go towards the, you know, the 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 parody of uh, you know, they they're either grossly overweight or like um, you know, in the Drew Carey show, we had a lot of of physically interesting people, um, but you know, much more caricatured. As opposed to, you know, let's say covert affairs or even, you know, any any of the what they call the big blue sky shows over here, burn notice, all those. They're they all they're all the same. It's you know, it's like you flipped through a book and said, Okay, uh, let's see model A or model B. Well model B is on discount this week, so we'll you know, they look the same, we'll just <laughs> pick one of the two. So it's one of the and, and Amy fits more into that beautiful people mold. Than I think any of the rest of of the Doctor's companions since Joe, which I guess I'm the only one here who knows who Joe is. <laughs> but you know, is is you know, I mean, she's the first one that fits sort of a an, an archetypical you know quote beauty mold, and I think it's it's a bit off putting coming from from a, a British show. It's a little bit out of place. Uh, you there know. was actually a, a, a kind of a big Ferrari. Well, not big. It was the Daily Mail, which is all, all Fox News newspaper, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that first episode where she's in the, I think it's a, a nurse's uniform or whatever. Yeah, the uh, policeman, policeman's uniform. Policeman, yeah, policeman's uniform. And there was this big thing. You can't sexualize the, the companion in Doctor Who. You can't do that. Uh, and whilst I think it was an overreaction, I think it does go to what can be saying. It, it, it doesn't fit Doctor Who. It doesn't quite, you know. I, I've, what I liked about Rose as a character is, even though she, you know, they, to some extent, kind of uh, sexualized, but it was it was much more subtle, and it was a bit a bit too much with Amy's character, I think. Yeah, you know, it, when I first heard people talking about Amy, that was that was kind of the first thing everybody said was, "Oh, she's so hot, she's so hot, she's so cute," you know. And it's like I, I didn't see the value of of saying that in 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 regard to Doctor Who because, I mean, I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly don't watch Doctor Who for like the love angle at all. And, <laughs> yeah, no. And, yeah, I mean, not at all. And, and I really have, I mean, one of the things that I've really liked about Doctor Who, and by extension, almost every single other UK show that we've watched since then, and we watched a lot since then is that the UK shows really have, like you guys said, a wide variety of physical appearances. I mean, people are black, they're heavier, you know, some of the women obviously are not size zeros, some of the guys are not bodybuilders. I mean, it's totally refreshing to see people on these shows who look like actual people. I mean, they got bad teeth, they've got a pimple here and there, or whatever, their, their hair isn't combed perfectly, and they're not ugly. I mean, they're not like a series of Quasimodos or anything, but they look like normal People that you know, you you actually might see on the street or something, and I really like that. So, I, I, I that's one thing I really appreciate, and I hope that they don't fall into that. I mean, I don't know if I should say it's it's an Americanization, but I mean, it, I kind of see it as an Americanization where people have to be beautiful and skinny, and it's just it's totally unrealistic. And I hope that quality stops where it is now. I remember seeing a, a behind the scenes um, thing for Twenty Four, and how one of the producers was very proud that his characters uh, were not conventionally pretty, and I just laughed. So yeah, you, <laughs> you, you think that your characters aren't conventionally attractive? <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, there's it, the Hollywood over here. I mean, when they mentioned that Russell T Davies was was coming over here to do a Torchwood spinoff, I mean, that's the worst possible thing, in my opinion, that could happen to. 
a BBC property is it for it to come here to the US and get produced by an American production house mm-hmm. I mean you can you can if you watch a lot of TV which you know for good or for evil I do <laughs> you can you can start to identify the production houses and you can see who has what look and you can kind of tell which ones are produced in the US and which ones that they're doing up in Canada and you know you can tell when they've you know actually like gone to another country for filming versus going out into the desert in Texas and pretending that they're in Saudi Arabia or whatever. So it's, you know, the, 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 I think that there's, you know, that it, it is a distinctively UK quality that the, the, the actors and actresses that are chosen are much more, they, they fit a much more realistic mold um, for, for, you know, with all of their flaws as it were. It's not a very deep pool over here. That's all I'll say. <laughs> it, it looks way more varied than what we get over here. I'll give you that, though. I mean, it's, it's, it definitely seems better. seems different. Yeah. Well, Kimberly, I'm glad you mentioned Amy Pond's voice. I, I spent some time in Scotland, so a Scottish accent is extremely important to me. And if there was a TV show where um, uh, Amy Pond and David Tennant sat in a room reading phone books <laughs> to each other, uh, I'm, I am DVRing that show. Uh, I, I, you know, I, Brad and I went back and forth on Amy Pond on on Twitter a bit, and I I think I have retracted a bit of my, of my love for her. Um, I think what I enjoy about that character is not so much her, but how that character was so intertwined in the plot arc of this season, uh, and, and that a companion hadn't be, really been used that way before. That that her backstory uh, played such a, a crucial role in how the events of, of season five played out. And 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 I think that to me was really interesting because it was a change from how companions had been used previously. Um, but the more I think about her character, I, I think you all have raised very good points about her. Um, her abrasiveness and, and and in some ways her unlikability. So, I, I will retract my my un, my undying love for her, and I, I will I will call it simply um, acceptance. <laughs> I'll take that know, as a from win. Undying love to acceptance. That's a pretty long fall. <laughs> it is a pretty. It's quite a drop. Um, it, but speaking of speaking of uh, impossibly attractive people, let's let's talk about. Uh, Captain Jack, because this this is a guy who, to me, uh, he seemed. I guess I would describe him as as the ultimate Boy Scout, almost Supermanish in his, 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 but kind of a goofy Superman. And I, 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 he's really, you know, Doctor Who has had many many recurring characters, but uh, he has come back uh, probably more than more than any. And uh, I always enjoy his appearances because he's just he's just so happy. And and I haven't seen Torchwood. I, I haven't seen any of that, so I don't know if that character uh, changes at all, or, or you know, if his personality uh, you know switches at, at all in that show. But but here's a guy who just wants to show up, just wants to to get it on all the time with whomever's in the room. Uh, he, and and I just I just enjoy that energy that he brings. What do, what do you guys think of Captain Jack Sanon? What what are your thoughts? Um, I, I like him for a lot of the reasons you say. I mean. The thing is, I I I felt a little bit like uh, because you know Russell T Davies is uh, very um, publicly uh, gay and um, 
uh, you know, tries to bring a lot of that into Doctor Who. And it, it feels a little bit like, uh, even though Cousin Jack is, I guess, essentially polysexual. Um, <laughs> if it has a heartbeat, it's fair game. <laughs> right. um, you know, it does feel... He, he does feel a little, a little bit like the mouthpiece sometimes for for some for, for gay themes. That, you know, that's not a problem. But I sometimes feel like he, Doctor Who does a good enough job of covering those side of things without him. Uh, sometimes, but you know, whatever. I, I don't really have a problem with it. Um, maybe I'm getting a bit more of Russell T Davies than I am at Captain Jack, <laughs> but that, that's a whole separate thing, really. <laughs> He's very much the Harvey Mudd of Doctor Who. Mm. Harvey Mudd, Harry yeah. Mudd, Harry Mudd. Sorry. I, That's okay. I, I'm I'm actually I I slipped gears there, and I was actually referencing. They originally were going to call the car, character Harvey Mudd, but it sounded too much like Harvey Wallbanger, so they switched <laughs> it to Harry Mudd, um, which will show you just how deep that G is engraved in my forehead. Um, you know, he's he's not as nefarious as he is supposed to be. You know, there's all kinds of references to him having. You know, some sort of illicit past in there somewhere, particularly when they brought on, um, I'm blanking on his name, the guy who played Spike in Buffy. James uh, Marsden. James yeah. Marsden, right, as his, as his former lover slash partner. Um, and I, I think there's so much more they could do with that, but it's like, but it, you know, they, they started with that in, in the first season of Doctor Who, and then, they sort of lost it, and he went like super psycho Boy Scout, uh, you know. And he's totally got a man crush on the Doctor, which I just think is hysterical. Um, <laughs> because in some ways, he is very much just like Martha Jones in that way. In that he's sort of, you know, every time he sees the Doctor, he just goes all weak kneed and 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 googly eyed, and and we sort of lose the sense of of Captain Jack. Um, I like him much better when he's apart from the doctor than uh than you know when they're working together as it were. I think he's a much stronger character when he's not um you know making eyes at whichever doctor happens to be <laughs> playing the role at that time. So but they did they did I mean in in the actor I think is also gay. Um yes. and he does a very good job of that over the top you know, sort of queen um, attitude of, you know, just everything about him is flamboyant and over the top. And, I mean, he even overshadows David Tennant at points with, you know, just being this larger-than-life individual. Uh, the actors are not too far from that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there are. It's, it's very weird, actually, to contrast him as Captain Jack and then look at... Um, he was doing that reality show with with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and to sort of contrast those two, um, because there is kind of a contrast. You know, when he's when he's not moving, he's you know not not as 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 big as the roles that he plays, which is always an interesting thing to see. Is that I think I would be much more interested in not knowing John Barrowman the person than I would be in knowing Captain Jack the character, mm, right. which which doesn't happen often. Usually, I would just rather know the character and the, and the actor while they may be a worthwhile human being. I'm not as interested in the actor um, as, as I am in the character they play. But with 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 uh, with Captain Jack, it's a little different. I think. 
Hmm. Interesting. I'm, I'm really a big Captain Jack fan. I love Captain Jack. I loved every time he came on uh, the Doctor Who show. And I was thrilled beyond belief when I found out that Torchwood was the spinoff that it was. I had heard of Torchwood, but that was before I knew uh, the connection to Doctor Who, so it never really clicked in my head. And when I saw the first episode of Torchwood and it was going to be all about Captain Jack, I was like, oh my god, this is going to be awesome. I love, I love him so much. And I do, I do agree that they kind of played him off. Uh, they, they played off his Boy Scout side, but I think that was okay. I mean, I think he's kind of jumping back and forth they definitely didn't spend a lot of time on the his his checkered past you know but as you get further on in the torchwood series there's a few moments that are pretty devastating that um really illustrate you know how i don't know that he's a bad person but i think that he can make choices that maybe other people wouldn't make and he's not afraid to make those choices and so it it makes him seem like kind of a bad guy sometimes but i don't think that he is um especially and i don't want to get too far off track here but in the the Children of Earth miniseries. I mean, that was just gut wrenching. That was brutal. It was oh my it's god! Like I, it gave me brutal. nightmares. I think I even cried, and it yeah. was just so bad. And that that to me was like one of the ultimate Captain Jack moments, where you see the other side of Captain Jack. He he doesn't want to screw anything at that moment. He's not happy go lucky. He is he is about being there and making the choice that nobody else wants to make. And that that to me is going to be forever forever etched in my mind as like one of the highest most intense moments of like science fiction that i've ever seen so i really liked that a lot that they they brought him there and mm-hmm. in general i do like his his g i want to have sex with everything side too so i really i just I enjoy him all the way around i think he's just a great <laughs> great character <laughs> i do i'm i'm wondering how the and i'm and i'm still mildly off topic here i am really wondering how they're going to bring i mean they're 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 reportedly working on a, a new torchwood and I'm really curious as to see how they write up his character in the wake of pretty much having the entire Torchwood team decimated again. Because I think this is like the third time it's happened in his, you know, in at it, least the, third time. Those people, yeah, lies. So yeah, <laughs> every time we turn around, he's the only one left. Exactly. Uh, and I do appreciate the the cleverness of some of the things that they've done with his with his immortality. Um, you know the 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 burying him underground and letting him chew his way out over the course of you know x hundred years um, was a particularly Highlander touch, I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I really like not to get into spoiler territory, but when they finally reveal what Captain Jack's ultimate fate is, that was pretty mind blowing. Yes. to me. I thought that was really really cool, and it I, was, I really think it could have been revealed better. It <laughs> felt very clumsy. Yeah, but. But as but it was another one of those gimme moments, you know, where all of a sudden you're looking at the roadmap of the story and you're like, yes, <laughs> it all makes sense. Very, very. <laughs> Do you think Captain Jack will come back, should come back into a Matt Smith episode? How do you think they would? I don't together. think so. I think that I think he was part of the previous world. The shift in tone to me seems to be so great that I think we're kind of just putting all that old stuff on pause. Uh, at first, I was kind of wondering if they were going to bring back anybody, but gut feeling, no, I don't think they will. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Matt Smith's Doctor Who and Captain Jack would get along at all. I think I really, I mean, just the the chemistry of the two different characters. I really think that if you put them in the in the same room t- together, you would you would have oil and water. And I think writing your way out of that would be troublesome, especially with Amy Pond being oversexed as she is. 
Right. Indeed, <laughs> just another guy for her to, to flirt with. Um, I, I get a sense that Matt Smith, that his doctor would just have no patience for Captain Jack's shenanigans. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about the you know the transition into the Matt Smith era and, and I guess we should we should take a few minutes and talk about the Russell T Davies era versus the uh, Stephen Moffat era and I, I, I wonder uh, you know do you have any initial thoughts on that I, I certainly uh, have trouble with uh, how the Russell T Davies era ended but I, I'm curious what your thoughts are first um, are, are we headed in the right direction? Do we like the changes that Moffat has brought to the table? Uh, and, and you know, looking to pre-Russell T. Davies, uh, you know, were you satisfied? You know, Kimberly, this is a good question for you. Were you satisfied with the, the, uh, the major changes that Russell T. Davies brought to the Doctor Who franchise? You know, when, when it changed over... You know, when the last couple of doctors before the great hiatus, um, Sylvester McCoy, um, and basically through from Doctor Five on up, um, I think they were really having trouble. I think they really wanted to do a reboot or they really needed to do a reboot. But at, in, at that point in time, you didn't reboot something like Doctor Who. I mean, it had you know, a 30-year history already and you didn't mess with something that was that popular. I think probably all of Britain might have risen up in arms and stormed BBC One <laughs> um, had, they gone, had they done then what they did now. And I think uh, yeah, Russell T. Davies did a lot of the novelizations. So he had a lot. And I know he was responsible for... I, I used to have all the, all the novels at one point, all the novellas. And I, you know... There, he he was very well steeped in the original material, and I think he did an excellent job changing it up and 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 coming at it with a fresh look. Um, I think he and Moffat are equally complicated with their 
with their story arcs, but Moffat is much more light-footed than Davies is. I feel like, you know, with, with Davies, I feel that it's, you know, at the end of the season, it's rolled out and there's a roadmap and you can see how everything's been plotted out. And Moffat does the same thing, but it's a much lighter hand and his clues are a lot subtler and his, you know, the, the things that are going to come back and bite you three, four, five, six episodes later are not as obvious um, as they, they would have been with, with Davies. So I think it's, I think it's a very different mindset, but at the same time, I think there's still this this sort of complicated chess game that both um, producers are very well accustomed to running. It, before before I complain about Russell T Davies, let me let me give <laughs> let me give Brad or Sanan a chance to jump in. Um, what do you think of the 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 transition to Moffat? What do you you know? Do you think one approach works better than the other? Uh, Brad, I'll start with you. Um, I I don't really know enough about each particular producer to be able to speak intelligently, but I can say that I did notice a pretty distinct shift um, when the changeover occurred. Um, I think it's fine. I mean, to me, it seems like a very, very clear shift. And, you know, new doctor, new direction. I was okay with that, but I will say that I'm a little bit concerned um, about the quality. I, I was really kind of dissatisfied with season five in a lot of ways. I liked Matt Smith very much, and I liked the new direction, the new tone. Um, but some of the writing just did not hold up for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to change. I, I, I really don't want to see more stylized yet less kind of substantial and more plot-holy episodes. I felt like that was a real problem for me. Um, Sinan, what, what did you think? It's interesting because um, in, the, in the Russell TD... Russell C. Davies era, um, my favorite episodes are the ones that Stephen Moffat wrote. Um, for example, from season two, he wrote the one with uh, Madame de Pompidou on, uh, with the, the fireplaces going back into her past. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a, it was a brilliant episode because um, it was so character-driven and it was such an interesting concept. It really played um, heavily on the fact that you know the Doctor does travel across time and he can do it at any point. Um, I realize that there's more the spaceship at, at, at full there, but I feel like a lot of the time um, in the Ross C. Davies era, you have you don't. He's wary of, and I guess it goes back to you know the rules of Doctor Who, or whatever. But he's wary of you know necessarily messing around too much with a story that revolves around time travel. Um, again, you know the other episode, Blink. Uh, which Stephen Moffat wrote an episode in season three with the with the statues and mm-hmm. uh, the the people getting taken into the past and having to or into the future, whatever. And it's I thought it was fascinating. It, it made for these really interesting stories, um, which you just didn't you don't get that in in the other episodes of the season. And so I was I was really anticipating season five. I thought you're going you're to get a lot more sort of interesting sci-fi ideas, which are still very character driven. It just hasn't delivered. And I don't know whether that's because maybe Moffat's a bit better at these one-off episodes rather than the whole series. I don't know. It's, it's. I'm hoping it's just the transition is a culture shock, but uh, it's not been quite there for me. I, I completely agree with you, Sinan. The the the, the Moffat episodes, Blink in particular, which I think many many fans will cite as their pick for the best of the Russell T Davies uh, era. Uh, Blink is just a, a, a brilliant entertainment. I, I, I was uh, I was really surprised that Moffat brought back 
so many things from his shows, from his previous shows. The fact that we brought the Weeping Angels back, mm-hmm. the fact that we brought River Song back, uh, that and and I don't know. It's almost it's the same thing that Star Trek did with the Borg. There were they were amazing once. And then they come back again and again and again, and it almost devalues the impact of their original appearance. And I felt like the same thing happened with the Weeping Angels. And and I don't know about you, but I'm completely sick of River Song at this point. (laughs) And I really... uh, Spoilers! It's like, enough! Please, God! (laughs) So I I was really surprised that Moffat, who has... uh, by all accounts, has dreamt of having this job his entire life to run Doctor Who and has had his entire life to think of 13 episodes that he brought back so many recycled ideas and that really, other than that first episode, which was just genius, uh, that there there wasn't really anything special about that fifth season. But he's yep. not telling the stories now, right? I mean, the difference between being a, a writer or even a director is massively different than being a producer. Yeah. Right. I mean, when you're the producer, you really is it's really a hands-off gig. Um, you just don't have time yeah. to get in and tell the story. Even if you even if you just sketch out the plot, even if you, I mean, even if you outline every single episode, it's still not going to be you writing the episodes. Yeah. From what I understand, though, Russell Davies was incredibly hands-on as a producer. He he really didn't, you know, even when someone else was writing an episode, um, he kind of wanted to get involved <laughs> in it. Um, and maybe, they, you know, that's why a lot of it does feel very consistent. The, the, the one thing about Stephen Moffat's season five, um, it's just that the disappointment means there's been a couple of really very bad episodes, you know, yes, the, yes. in terms of, you know, standing out across the whole five seasons as the worst episodes, like the, the one with, the, with World War II and the Daleks and Churchill mm-hmm. was just an abomination yeah. of writing, yeah. you know, contrived, rushed, implausible, just and uninteresting. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, you contrast against the World War II episode, World War II, World War I, um, in season one, which is, you know, very dark and, really plays on some interesting themes, you know, and, and actually speaks about what was going on at the time, and, you know, for people in, in the war. Whereas this one's just this stupid sci-fi nonsense, which doesn't have a place. It, it's just silly. And there are a couple of episodes like that in season five, and that's what's really disappointing to me about, about it. It almost I, feels I, like yeah, they're educating more. Amy Pond in sci-fi. Yes. You know, I mean, some of these things are so so retrodden. Some of these stories and memes that are that are have popped up in season five. It really feels like the education of Amy Pond, in some ways. Except that Amy Pond is not likable, so it's kind of wash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, let me let me complain for a bit about the end of the the Russell T. Davies era, since we're getting into some negativity here and, and let me just pile on. Um, (laughs) I, I hated, hated that Rose came back. And the reasons are obvious. The, you know, you have that beautiful, wonderful, magnificent, Brad, as you said, parting of the ways. And I think that was the name of the episode. Um, and then for her to come back completely devalues 
uh, the impact of that moment, because it should have been impossible. By the very rules established in the episode, it should have been impossible. And I realize it's television and it's fiction and you can just make up whatever you want at any time, but it really does uh, kind of ruin that moment uh, from season two. And then to give her a a cloned doctor boy toy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I, I guess. And, and, and it seemed like it seemed like Russell T. Davies forgot how to write for Rose. Billy Piper forgot how to play Rose. None of it felt right. And and it just what was it? Was was there a, a were the fans crying out for for the doctor and Rose to get Fan together? Service. Is that is that what it was? was yeah, it totally. It was it was is the typical to bring in video games for a second. It was like the typical classic RPG ending that every RPG super fan wants. You want to bring every single person back. You want to have closure on every single character that's ever been introduced. You want to have everybody have the happiest ending possible, and that's the way the RPGs are supposed to end. So translate that into this you know, this show, and that's exactly what it was. I mean, I totally agree that bringing Rose back was a mistake. It does cheapen like that really super poignant parting, which was a really memorable moment, and instead it becomes kind of a joke because, like you said, the, the show just broke its own rules. And, and granted, this is fiction, of course, but you know, any good writer knows that once you establish those rules, you cannot break them. Otherwise, you risk losing the trust of your audience. I mean, any any writer worth their salt knows this. You only have one chance to get these rules set up, and you cannot change them later on. Otherwise, it's all going to go in the trash. You have a really high risk of throwing it in the trash. And that, to me, was just like it was just improbable. I, I totally agree with you that that they shouldn't have gone that route. I mean, I I, I appreciated that some of the the loose ends got tied up for sure, but it didn't need to be that thorough. It didn't need to go on for that long, and not everybody needed to come back that did come back. Did the fans really want it? I mean, I got the impression that, um, you know, things like Martha ending up with Mickey, it, to me, it felt like Russell T. Davies masturbating to his own ideas from <laughs> that, the end of the last show. It's just ridiculous. And I couldn't, I, it couldn't have ended quicker for me. Awful. Yeah, the Martha Mickey thing was just a travesty. That was that bad. Was, that was oh really bad. Mickey was just a travesty for the longest time. But they, I mean, I, it, it does feel like it was, you know, very much a clear signal, right? We are going to close out all of these characters. We do not ever want to hear from them again. They are done. Exactly. Everybody has their happy ending. We have Dit and this and this and this. And, you know, Donna gets married and Martha and Mickey end up together. And Donna gets her boy toy. And, I mean, just click, 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 click. And it goes through and they, they close out everything, really. And, I mean, it's, it's like they just put up a big wall, really. It, yeah, it, it's almost yeah. like it's just to shut everybody up. We are moving on. It's almost on. like a reboot of we'll the reboot. We'll never hear from these people again. Yeah, it's like another reboot, right? Yeah. And then Moffat's rebooted it again, really, with this whole universe coming from the mind of Amy Pond bit at the end. Mm-hmm. Which was mm-hmm. awful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. If I could have dropped a TARDIS into the middle of my wedding, that certainly would have would have been something to watch. <laughs> <laughs> That was a pretty cool moment. I, I like that quite a bit, actually. When she's she summons the doctor back into existence, I I, I enjoyed that. I cheered a little bit, just a uh, little, guy, a little bit. I wanted to vomit. God, that was awful. <laughs> whole, I mean, I'm sorry to keep you know. I guess just you know piling on again, but I just I just I just have to say, the closure to season five was 
fucking trash. Like, you know, please excuse my language. I hated the ending to season five. I thought it was complete garbage, and I really am hoping that they don't repeat that. I mean, the whole everything about it was bad. All of it. I mean, they, the unexplained crack. You know, Rory coming back. The whole this was all drawn from Emmy's memory. The stupid uh, Pandorica that Doctor Who got out of, which he really had no way to get out of. I mean, all those aliens coming together to like hold hands and 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 cheer when the Doctor gets locked up. It was all a steaming pile of crap. I hated, hated, hated it, and it was so subpar compared to some of the high points of the series. It just, it really stuck in my craw. I just, I'm sorry. I need to just say that. I, I have to say, all of the bad guys coming together to lock up the Doctor, it was like flashbacks to the late 70s and the Justice League and the Legion of Doom. <laughs> you know, we shall get all the bad guys together at our own little Doom castle. And <laughs> it was like, I'm like, you're freaking kidding me. Uh. You know. so, so not get too negative on season five. There, I don't know if it's got to America yet, but the Christmas special. Um, oh, I love the Christmas been, special. was good. No, that was yeah. good. That was good. I actually avoided my parents the entire day so I could watch the Christmas special. I made my travel plans around the Christmas <laughs> special this year. I come from a house that is not exactly Doctor Who friendly. so <laughs> I can relate. I can relate. Um, yeah, when I, when I heard the Christmas special was going to be a retelling of A Christmas Carol you know, I, like how many retellings of that do we really need? But I thought, I thought the spin was just, just fantastic, just, just top notch. So probably yeah. my second favorite Matt Smith uh, episode. So um, here we are. We are probably at a point where we should start thinking about wrapping this up. So let me first ask each of you: Is there uh, anything? that we haven't talked about that you would like to mention any points you'd like to make questions you'd like to pose to the group songs you'd like to sing. Um, now is, <laughs> now is the time. I've got a couple if uh, nobody else does, but I'll, I'll let every, other people go first. Well, I was, I was going to bring up river song, um, but I think we've already, already touched on her. I find, I find it. She's another one of those characters that works much better without the doctor in scene than she does with him in scene. You know, whenever there's an interaction between her and the doctor, it's all nods and winks and I know more than you do. And, you know, just really kind of annoying after a while. But when they, when they write her up with the exception of the pseudo James Bond being blown out the airlock bit, um, (laughs) at the beginning of the weeping angels episode, she's a, a, a much more interesting character. And I have to wonder if there's spinoff material there. Or if she's being designed for spin-off material, um, you know, the adventures of of, of River Song, um, you know, miniseries or something in the future. I just love the idea. I I, I loved just having a little. Uh, just uh, let me not. <laughs> I was going to say something I absolutely should not have said. Um, <laughs> I, I like I. I it, it, River Song worked in a very small dose 
in the I, I think it was the li- it took place in the library the library in yeah. in yeah. the David Tennant episode, and mm-hmm. I I loved the concept of she is the companion of maybe the 19th Doctor or the 21st Doctor, that she is from so far into the future and knows so much because she says to the Doctor, oh, you look so young. She's just astounded by how young he looks. And I thought that's a great concept. But now that she is fully integrated and and she shows up every three episodes having adventures, I just... I I, I just hate the idea that it, it seems like they're going to resolve the story of River's Song with Matt Smith. And I and maybe that's the wrong impression to get, but I, I liked it much more when she was just off in a distant future with a doctor that we would probably never see. And I think she just worked better in that capacity. I agree. I totally agree. I, I actually don't care for her that much at all, and I think she shows up far too often, and they're just overusing her. I mean, I think a one-off was really interesting, but I'm, I'm tired of her. I don't like her very much, and I don't think she has very much chemistry with Matt Smith at all. And in fact, I mean, that's kind of one of my big problems with season five is I don't think the characters together have very good chemistry. I mean, I think Matt Smith is great, but I don't think he fits with Amy Pond. I don't think he fits with River Song. And it's just this, this weird machine they've put together. And in the previous seasons, I mean, I loved having Rose's mom and Mickey and everybody else get together. Like, they all kind of, like, got along in this weird dysfunctional way. And it was always t- a pleasure to me, anyway, to see them together. And, and when Donna's grandpa showed up, I loved Donna's grandpa. And it was always really fun to have that going. But in this group, I mean, it's just, it's just weird. And River Song just compounds the whole thing. I just dislike, dislike, dislike. I don't know who mentioned it, but uh, there is chemistry between Matt and Rory. Matt Smith and Roy's. Yes, yes. That, <laughs> yeah. That's actually the one thing that kind of works for me. Yeah. <laughs> and you know they won't kill off Amy Pond, so we're gonna have to drop her on an asteroid somewhere for a while Please. and have like a, have like a series of Amy Pond's been abducted type episodes, or you know, she's un- unfortunately clever though with getting herself self out of trouble. They'll have to knock her unconscious and lock her in a trunk somewhere. <laughs> but I, th- I mean, in the in the what now. 40-year history of this show, they've only killed off, I think, one character. And even the actor who played that character was really happy they killed him off. <laughs> well, there's always a chance. We can, we can hope. <laughs> I, I have a very serious question. Um, which, of the, which of the doctors is the best dressed? Ooh. David Tennant, Ooh. come on. Blue suit? Sneakers. Sneakers? Sneakers and a trench coat. You're not, not into the tweed look for Matt Smith? I know too many people who have the tweed look as part of their their natural wardrobe for that to be as as exotic as they seem to think it is. I know too many professors. Although credit credit Eccleston for for wearing the uh, uh, an outfit that is such a departure from what came before. I don't know if you credit Eccleston for that, but but uh, he uh, he made it work. Mm-hmm. You made it work. Well, I, think the, I do the, the wish they'd thing... kept the Fez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody wishes oh, the Fez man. would make a reappearance. The leather jacket and the Fez would have been a great combination. Um, <laughs> I, I think the funny thing about Eccleston is that he, he the whole reason he left off one season is he didn't want to be remembered for that character, but his look is probably the most distinctive of all the Doctors, you mm-hmm. know, because it's so different from any of the others. Definitely. Brad, I noticed you haven't jumped in on the apparel question. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of something substantive to say, and I just didn't have anything, so I'm just going to let it go. 
Yeah. I do like the Fez, though. I, mu- I must admit, I, I do hope the Fez comes back. And uh, does anyone want to say it? Fez is Fez's cool. Are cool. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 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 um, Brad, you mentioned you had a couple things you wanted to. Uh, I do have just a couple quick questions, and I'm hoping that the brain trust here together can kind of help me solve these. Um, the first one, when the Silurians uh, appeared in season five, I was just boggled beyond all belief that a there none of the Silurians had like reptilian eyes. I mean, that seemed like the biggest like WTF. They're they're dinosaurs, they're reptiles. Why do they have human eyes? And number two, why do the females have breasts? There's no record of any reptile in history nursing their young. And it was like the women Silurians had breasts. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, one one issue I have in, in any show in general is that the aliens are never alien enough. And I realize that from a writer's perspective, you can't have them be totally alien because then the audience gets turned off and they can't identify, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, I mean, come on. That was kind of a... That was that was kind of a gimme. But uh, the more serious question to me, and Kimberly, maybe you can add to this, was the whole bad wolf concept. I know that they really played on it pretty heavily with Rose. But, you know, to be honest, I just, I just never really got, like, the aha moment. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm just not quick enough or clever enough, or maybe I didn't put enough pieces together. But it, I, I always kept waiting for the bad wolf thing to really click, and it just... It just never really did for me. I mean, did you guys really feel like that was that was done to your satisfaction, or like it was answered in a way that that made you happy? It, you know, it, it uh, when the rose arc ended, I I was I was satisfied with that as a conclusion, and then when it popped up again with Donna, it was I mean it was an unusual, uh, particularly for for serialized television, it was a very unusual uh, twist. To throw in there because they really gave us the impression with Bad Wolf Bay that that story that 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 was done. You know, oh yes, okay, we've had two seasons dropping all these hits, and boom, here's the event that's supposed to happen, and then it pops up that you know w- with Donna in the um, the episode where there's a thing on her back, um, where all of a sudden they you know it sort of comes bubbling up from under the storyline again. And it's just like oh shit. You know, which it, it, it's just an unusual thing to see happen in television from a story perspective. You know, you don't usually have, you don't usually have, you know, uh, concepts and storylines that last that long um, that will show up through several different story arcs. Um, and it, I think the, the aha moment for me was when it popped back up in... In uh, with Donna, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, this hasn't gone away. Um, and you know what we thought was the end of it, it was was not actually the end of it, and it became a much bigger thing. But what was it? I mean, I just I don't have a concept in my head. Like you, like you, I thought it ended with Rose, and that was okay, a little bit unresolved, but still, I had a handle on it. But then it pops up again, and I'm like, this doesn't fit with anything else. I don't, I don't get it. You know, I mean, I guess I just I'm just slow or something, but it just didn't fit for me. Well, well, I quite liked about it. If, if I, because I didn't really appreciate it returning actually in series two and series four. But I, I get what, what you're saying, Kimberly. I mean, I, I agree. I like you know story arcs and things lasting across a you know seasons and maybe even ser- you know whole series. But um, I like the kind of paradox actually about it in season one. It's a, I, I like it as a sci-fi concept of well, where did this start? You know, was it Rose seeing the the bad wolves or her coming up with this thing? You know. 
when she's you know got the essence of the TARDIS in her, and it and the fact that it didn't really make sense, I quite liked because it it gave it kind of mystery and you know I think that's always a good side of sci-fi when it's just a little bit intangible, a little bit uh, difficult to get your head around. Um, I, I'm it's kind of like you know <laughs> the midi chlorians of Star Wars. You don't need to explain everything. Really. <laughs> no, I I agree with you, Brad. Um, I I remember watching. Uh, I, I was sitting down at lunch with my uh, my old boss, who is also a Doctor Who fan, and we were just talking. And he looked at me and he said, "All right, we both just watched the finale of this episode. Can you explain Bad Wolf?" And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Okay, this is what happened. And then I was like, uh, well, uh, n- no. <laughs> no, I can't explain Bad Wolf. <laughs> um, and and I, I don't think I really... I don't think I really can, uh, particularly when it came back. I felt like when it came back later that it was just it was just a random callback. I didn't get a sense that... It, 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 I got a sense that it was more fan service than just... Um, than an actual, like, something that had been threaded into the plot. I may not have been paying attention well. I may just be slow. Uh, but, yeah, it, it never really... I, it, I never had the aha moment. I think you put it very well, Brad. Hmm. All right. Just checking. Just checking. I have one question completely out of the blue. I believe that for season six... For the very first time, Doctor Who is shooting in America. Ah, correct, yes. So my question for you is, Sanan, are you okay with that? There's only so many times I can see Cardiff (laughs) 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 and believe that it's New York. So yes. (laughs) By all means, stretch your limits, BBC. <laughs> when when are, when can we expect to see season six? I don't. I haven't even uh, seen a date yet. Does anyone know? My girlfriend thinks it's very shortly in a few weeks. She yeah, seems to it's decide. in March. I think. I think it hits. I mean, I know that that the UK gets it before we do, but not. It used to be we had to wait on our you know friends in the UK to send us pirated DVDs. Um. You know, which I would never actually do, but the um, the they're starting to BBC America is starting to air them much more closely together. Um, it says spring of two thousand and eleven, but I re- I remember somewhere seeing that it was supposed to be in March because there's a bunch of stuff coming back in March. Well, whatever problems we had with season five, I think I can speak for all of us when I say I can't wait. Agreed. <laughs> yep. Definitely. Yeah. So um, we are we we have been recording two hours. We are we have doubled our intended show length, and I uh, I loved every minute of it. I cannot thank the three of you enough for joining me, um, Brad. Who's whomever uh, came up with this idea? I think it was you. Uh, it was me. Congratulations yes. <laughs> on such a fantastic, uh, on a fantastic conversation. I, I take full credit. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, you guys helped, though. It was good to have you for it. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> once uh, season uh, once season six airs, I hope that we can uh, Kimberly Sanon have both of you back on, and uh, we'll take a look at uh, season six and and perhaps bring in some additional uh, old school Doctor Who. 
uh, enthusiasts to uh, put us whippersnappers in our place. So uh, I, I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll come back at a future date to talk more Doctor Who. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. Fantastic. Well, this is the part of the show where everybody gets a chance to plug their stuff. So if you have a Twitter account, a website, a company, a product, whatever you've got, take the opportunity. You have, I I think at last count, we have about six and a half million listeners, and uh, every one of them (laughs) just eager to uh, buy your products. So let me start with, uh, let's start with Kimberly Unger. Uh, Kimberly, please plug your stuff. All right. Well, my uh, my company Bushigo is producing a episodic mobile game that will be coming out uh, in 2011, hopefully before summer, and we are dropping the uh, prequel novel. So we actually have a proper full-blown science fiction cyberpunk novel um, that's been written as a prequel to the game, and that's going to be dropping next week. And uh, we will be posting links to our Twitter page, or sorry, not Twitter page, our Facebook page at uh, www.facebook.com slash Agileast. Um, so those, uh, those links will be going up in the next week or so, probably right after GDC. Fantastic. We will put a, uh, if we may, we'll put a link in our show notes uh, to that so people can check that out. Um, and then, Kimberly, do you have a, a, a Twitter account, that you, your own personal Twitter account that you'd like to plug if people want to uh, keep in touch? Absolutely. Um, my personal Twitter account is Ingenue, uh, I-N-G-3-N-U, because the three is silent, you see. <laughs> and um, the I can also be found on the Agilist Twitter account, um, which is run by either myself or two, my other two partners. It's, uh, it's sort of a Russian roulette as to who you'll be speaking to on that account, though. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you uh, so much for being with us, Kimberly. Sure. Uh, Sanan Kuba, plug your stuff, Hello. sir. I will. Thank you very much. Um, just to say as well, yeah, thank you for having me on. It was a, a real pleasure. Um, so, yeah, I, I um, write about the video games which I, I hear you guys like to talk about. And um, we, I do that um, all over the place, but you can find most of it at my blog, which is um, shoinan.com, S-H-O-I-N for Norman, A-N for Norman. And I'm actually part uh, this year of the uh, One a Day project, where it's all in the name of charity trying to write a blog post a day. So um, I apologize in advance for all the rubbish I write, but it's all in a good cause. Uh, uh, and you can also find me on Twitter at... Um, at Shoinan, the same uh, name. Um, and I do a podcast. Oh, yeah. BigRedPotion.com. <laughs> I forgot about nice. it. Yeah, we talk about video games there too. And uh, if you like gaming podcasts, Big Red Potion, uh, and I mean this quite seriously, I, I would say this even if you weren't here, uh, one of the best gaming podcasts there is. Oh. So if you, if you. you listen to gaming podcasts, you get the Big Red Potion, uh, no doubt. So, uh, Sanan, thank you, uh, as always, so much for being here. Uh, and uh, Mr. Brad Galloway. It's me. Um, I I'm could, a regular I, on this show, so <laughs> I, I feel kind of bad plugging anything. Um, <laughs> but hey, I'm on the GameCritics.com podcast. If you guys would like to listen to that, you can find me there. <laughs> I also am the reviews editor at GameCritics.com, so if you read about games, you can find me there. And if you want to follow me in a little more detail, you can follow my personal blog at Drinking Coffee Cola, all one word, 
Uh, you can find that on Blogspot. And you can follow me on Twitter under my name, Brad Galloway. Very good. And, and, you and, and some I- of us already do. <laughs> <laughs> and Brad, you and I are going to assemble in about uh, 21 and a half hours to record another one of these uh, podcasts, our big 50th episode spectacular. So can't wait, cannot wait. It's uh, the first time we've double dipped over a weekend, and it's going to be something else. <laughs> That's what my wife says. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wait, what? Uh, okay, and uh, yeah, I feel silly plugging anything. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know where to get it: uh, GameCritics.com. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, I am at Tim Spath. And I do have a blog that I don't update at all at kernelt.com, so you can check that out. I I really wouldn't bother, but uh, you could if you want to. So um, one last time, my thanks to Brad Galloway, Kimberly Unger, and Sanan Kuba. Uh, That's our Doctor Who show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, good night and bon chance. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that French thing he always says. What does he say? On Z. Wait for that. Oh, disappointed. Okay. Oh, wait a second. Okay. Let me. Now I. Wait, he can edit that in. Let me edit that in. Edit it in. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, for Brad Galloway, Kimberly Unger, and Sanan Kuba, I'm Tim Spaeth. Good night and allons-y. Much better. Thank you awesome. for the suggestion. I appreciate it. <laughs> good call. Good call. All right. Tonight's show is a little different. Tonight's show is about a man who's not really a man. He's a doctor, but he's not really a doctor. Like Dr. Phil, but awesome. Most people in the United States of America have not heard of him. He's just like me in that regard. Who is he? He's the doctor. And if 
there is any hope for any of us in this giant explosion in which we inhabit, then surely that's it. Intellect and romance triumph over brute force and cynicism. Right, Doctor? Absolutely. Perfect.